This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. This is a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the Wharton People Analytics Conference in Philadelphia, bringing together prominent data scientists, human resources managers, and members of academia to explore the use of data technology to enhance the work environment and create smarter managers and leaders. Here's your host, Professor Cade Massey. Welcome to the Wharton People Analytics Conference. It's the second year we're broadcasting here at the conference to bring you some of the top minds and ideas on how data can improve your organization and develop smarter leaders and better businesses. I'm Cade Massey, one of the hosts of Wharton Moneyball and Wharton Practice Professor of Operations, Informations, and Decisions. I'm excited to be here on the conference floor in Center City, Philadelphia, to bring you this exclusive look at the third annual People Analytics Conference. Um, we, we have another of our morning speakers just just sat down, rolled in here from his experience in the conference, Coleman Ruiz. Coleman is a former special operations. Um, uh, what, what's the right term, Coleman? You were former. We won't call you Navy SEAL, but you don't usually offer that so readily. You were in the special forces, and you also were a trainer in the special forces, and you were also an advanced trainer in the Special Forces. Coleman Ruiz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kay. Appreciate you, appreciate you having me. Yeah, I, you know, I, I tend to use the term Special Operations more than uh, using Navy SEAL specifically because in broader audiences, there's a lot of different types of Special Operations across Navy, Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, and I think it's important for people to understand that there's a lot of similarities for not people to just hear, oh, this guy's a Navy SEAL. Well, I worked with a lot of Army Rangers, a lot of Special Forces guys in the Army, combat controllers in the Air Force, and they all have a lot of similar characteristics. So mm -hmm. when we're in this environment, I want people to remember that when we talk about special operations in general, it really scales across all the different service sectors. Okay. And that's important to remember, particularly at People Analytics Conference. Well, and, and we were talking yesterday about this. It sounds like those different special forces are now in more communication than they used to be. And you're trying to learn from each other and figure out some common language for the way you develop these teams. Is that right? Yeah, as things, uh, a couple different things. One, you know, as the, I'll just say the war is broadly developed after 9-11, mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the way we work in special operations is, is so joint now. And you know, cross-functional across the service heads. Okay. Whereas years and years ago, you know all the guys in the Navy, you didn't know anybody in Army Special Operations. Well, we know we're, we're so cross-functional across those service heads now, yeah. that's, that's really important. Does, um, does that mean that you're actually operating together in some sense, or 100%. at least coordinating? Okay. No, in the same unit, in the in field. In the same unit. In, in the, the same field. unit, in the field, in many cases. Can you cases. give us an example of a unit that's multi multi, multi Yeah, groups? so in SOCOM, SOCOM has, I won't use all the unit names here, but I'll give you an operational example. Yeah, you know, example. we might go out on a target. There might be 35 people in a, in a troop that's going out to do something in the middle of Iraq or Afghanistan. In that troop, you might have, uh, let's just use 30 as the number, you might have 20 uh, active duty trained special operations, whether it's Army Rangers or SEALs. Also in that unit, you're going to have a non-SEAL radio operator. You're going to have a air controller who's in the Air Force. You're going to have a dog handler that's a professional and um, working dog. You may have an FBI agent that's an interrogation and negotiations expert. These folks are all going in the field together. They have different places in the field. They have different training, different responsibilities. Okay. But when I say we work jointly, it's physically together in the field. Mm -hmm. So something you talked about this morning was the importance of that, uh, that coordination and how it 
increases over time, and the more mm -hmm. advanced you are, the more the tighter you are, and the more tightly coordinated you are. Yeah. How, what have you seen teams do that facilitated that coming together, or impeded that coming together? Yeah. The the the, the one major thing that impedes it coming together is training and rehearsals. If you have four or five multiple different units that are operating all around the country, we call in garrison, at home, and then you deploy those units and you attach them together. You have to be very careful with how you use those attachments if they haven't trained and rehearsed together. The units that work the best, whether they're stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington, you know, somewhere down in Alabama, Virginia Beach, they meet places physically in the U.S. to train specifically okay. together, and then they come together. It'd be like, if you really wanted a killer people analytics conference, we would have gotten together three months ago, rehearsed it, <laughs> trained it, and then came and delivered it. And that's not practical, but that's the kind of diligence that we have to put against some of these teams that we call mission-critical teams, as you okay. know. Okay, okay. So you, you mentioned analytics, and you're at an analytics conference. Mm -hmm. and, and what has been the trajectory of your interest in analytics, and what's an example of how you guys are using analytics to improve your teams? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, gosh, as I listen to presentations here, I would say, we're probably average to below average compared to academic institutions, some of these well-resourced businesses like Zappos and Googles in terms of how we look at analytics. Um, but my interest started when I was a Buzz instructor. Um, a Buzz instructor. Yeah, a Buds instructor. Buds instructor. Buds, sorry, so that's the, that's basic the, underwater demolition. There you go. So okay. That's the training school in, in Coronado. I went back there in 2005 to be a first phase instructor. First okay. phase is where we do help. After week. a number of years in the field, is that right? Oh uh, Yeah, from 99, I was operational from 1999 until 2003. Okay. Then I was a Buds instructor, and then I went back to operations from 2006 to 2011. Jeez, okay. Yeah, and so when I was an instructor, we, you, you have some of these experiential trends. You see what, what, what folks do well, what folks don't do well mm -hmm. in first phase, which is the most intense part of our training in Coronado. And we started to really work on correlations with what factors do we see when a person comes in and does it correlate to their success. Initially, at BUDS, the correlations are not very good. Maybe it's because the raw materials are so raw. What, can you, real quickly, can you give us an example of something you're trying to correlate? So what are some of the input that you're looking at, and then what, how do you measure success? So here's, uh, success is really, do they graduate okay. from the first six months of training? Okay. And do they make it? Yeah, do they make it, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 and clearly... I mean, it's experiential screening process. The only two things we really have with someone, say, walks into a recruiting station in the middle of the country and says, I want to be a Navy SEAL. Mm -hmm. They take the ASVAB, the Armed Services Vocational Battery. They get an ASVAB score, and they take a physical test. And they have a physical score measured against, which we think, what physical scores exhibit. Well, first of all, you have to make the standards. Yep. But what other scales higher than the standards make it more likely that you're yep. going to succeed? Mm -hmm. And so... The correlations aren't that great, frankly. Okay. But they get better later. Does, does, when you say they get better later, you mean the, the physical skills and abilities translate more into the advanced training than they do in the basic training? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the job performance skills translate better later. You have more data to look at. When, you, when right. a guy enters advanced training for one of our tier one units, he's eight years into a career. Right. Just more, you have more data to work with. So I, you, know, you guys are famous for the physical demands of the job, but also I think for the, for the character and what many people would call grit. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you look at that and try to assess that? Yeah, we, um, if we're just talking about, you know, Dr. Duckworth's grit scale, well, to my knowledge, it's not being used in that way right now. Mm -hmm. But when I first opened, I mean, the, the book is not even out yet, but when I first opened Paul Tuff's book, How Children Succeed, mm -hmm. and he had a lot of things in there about KIPP schools and Dr. Duckworth's research, and mm -hmm. I'm really like, this is what we do. Mm, this really? Is, yeah, this is what we look for. Okay. And so, um, 
And then when I first read through the questions in the grit scale, I was thinking this is a fantastic measure of long-term, not necessarily resilience, but mental performance. You know, what, what people broadly call mental toughness. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's a tough scale for us to put to use in a way uh, early, early on. But my estimation is that um, Professor Duckworth's information would probably be very useful in measuring uh, Bud's success when our raw material is so raw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So We're talking to Coleman Ruiz. Coleman is COO and operating partner with Severn Capital Partners. He's also a former Special Forces um, and is a trainer in the Special Forces. Used he to be. Used to be a trainer, former trainer, and, and, and advanced, advanced as well. What is it that, 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 that qualifies a Navy SEAL, say, to go to the advanced school? Yeah, and, what, and what is the different demand on, on them? Yeah, I'm going to talk really broadly around this one just for operational security reasons, but the, the, we have a unit that has a different mission set. That, that unit screens from the rest of the SEAL teams, and you have to have very high job performance in your previous you know, uh, deployments. And you have to be recommended. Coleman, can, yeah. you can you tell us what that means? I mean, it's hard to imagine people don't. I mean, you, again, the missions kind of they happen or they don't. So how do you, what separates the top performing SEALs or special forces from the average performer, which is already amazing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that. It's tough. I mean, the Na so first of all, the Navy has a performance management system that everybody uses. But we also have some informal metrics that we consider inside of special operations. And so a lot of it's tactical. Look, some even though all, you know, guys are in the SEAL teams together, some are better tacticians than others. Mm -hmm. Some have been more successful in dealing with complex problem sets overseas than mm -hmm. others for a various you know, subset mm -hmm. of reasons. Mm -hmm. Those folks, some of it is intuitive assessment that the commanding officer says, you know, you're right. going to be a good fit for the next level. Right. So they go. Okay. And when that group goes to the next level, there's an additional nine-month training program at this next level. And that training program, the way I describe it to people is, like I mentioned earlier downstairs, if we just think of it as a tactical example. When I was at SEAL Team 3, you do most of your free fall jumps in the daytime from 13,000 feet with a little bit of gear. Yeah, nothing. It's not that big <laughs> of a deal. You do your jumps at this advanced unit at 25,000 feet with probably 60 pounds of gear on oxygen, on night vision with no Good lights. And so so if, if you take that, Kate, across the, the, the organization's new problem set at this advanced unit, right. everything scales like that. Okay. And so when I use the terminology like see one, do one, I'm kind of being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you have to be able to see something, very rapidly assimilate that into your current skill set, and then use it at the next opportunity. If you can't do that, then you're going to be challenged by the pace of operations. Why? Because as I mentioned, Snowden's Kinefin model, we're dealing with complex and chaotic problem sets. You don't have time to sit down and analyze everything. Mm -hmm. That's for the experts to deal with. When we have those situations, we really like to use that analysis, but most of the time, it's a rapidly emerging problem set that changes very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, jumping out of a plane at night from 25,000 feet with 60 pounds on oxygen <laughs> Sounds like a far cry from what most folks at this conference or any other, you know, non-military conference mm -hmm. do for a living. Right. What do you think they can learn from your experience training these folks, assessing these mm -hmm. folks, building teams? What can we learn from the special operations? Yeah, remember, the first thing I always talk to when I'm talking just folks in settings like this is remember, like, no, nobody in the teams is a superhero. Like, we all have the same, we have two arms and two legs, and, but folks started with some raw material, maybe measured by the grit scale, and then, and then a lot of time and attention, training, mentoring, team dynamics, you know, critical incident debriefing, honest AARs, all these team dynamics we, a lot of people talk about, but in my opinion, don't really do the way we do it. Mm -hmm. And over time, 
folks, uh, first of all, I mean, we're all adaptable. We're trainable if we're honest about the level of training that is required. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, if we're honest about where we are. If we're honest about where good, we are. Yeah. You know, don't pretend to be somebody you're not, but when you have the opportunity to push it to the next level, if you don't want to take it to the next level, you're just not the right fit, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make you a bad person. Mm -hmm. Coleman, what's something that you personally got better at over time when you were in the special forces? Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a really good question. I think I probably got uh, more operationally patient and compassionate with even though our teams are notoriously non-diverse, when it, being very mindful of individual skill sets and how not everybody has to do the same thing, individuals okay. can flourish inside this non-diverse team mm -hmm. and really, really be uh, exponentially additive to the team. Mm -hmm. Initially, you come into the teams, I think, everybody just needs to do this. Well, that's <laughs> something, some of it comes with age and maturity and stuff like that. But when I, when I really became more operationally patient with my teams internally, I realized how, how, much, how much more individuals could add. When normally it's like, well, we're not any individuals. Everybody's, you know, well, let people sort of like move into the things they really love to do. Mm -hmm. And inside that team, it's, a, it's an exponential addition to the performance. Do you have someone in your experience who was especially effective at coaching you and developing you? And what is it you think that made them special at that? Yeah, I'll mention one guy, not by name, overseas. He was, a, he was, he was essentially my CO overseas when I was in combat in Iraq in 2007, 2008 brilliant at giving commanders clear and specific commander's guidance or CEO's guidance and uh, I mean just voraciously disciplined with not only being accountable to his own guidance and how we used it but making sure um, he was he was clear about the direction he gave he supported every action we took if it was within the guidance that he gave us and he gave us the flexibility to use our individual skills to help the team, you know, really, really be mm -hmm. successful. I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. He was so non-traditional army leader. He was just like, here's the four things I want you to focus on. Go get it done. Terrific. Terrific. Coleman, thanks for the time. Thanks for stepping away from the conference. Uh, wish you the best with your work. Really appreciate your being here. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.